John um, chapter 11, starting at um, verse 55. And incidentally, in this rather long passage, you'll find quite a number of John's editorial comments. The Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple complex, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. Well, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. And they came not only to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he'd raised from the dead. Therefore the chief priests decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. The next day, when a large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear no more, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they'd done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. And then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at Jerusalem. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it. 
and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus responded, This voice came not for me but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We've heard from the scripture that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. But this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? This is why they were unable to believe. Because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and be converted, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. It's nice to be back with you. I'm Simon. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the assistant pastors here at church by the bridge. Um, 
please keep John chapter 12 open in front of you. I also just want to confess that we won't be looking at all of John chapter 12 tonight. We'll just be looking at the first eight verses. However, I will make references to that as we go along. Uh, What a wonderful chapter of scripture that is. And I'm going to side with you, Peter. There are times when I sit down and read the Bible and my mind wanders and I have no idea what's going on. Um, Yeah, I'm with you. Let's meet up and we'll, you know, do it together sometime. Um, We are in John's Gospel, as as Paul just mentioned before. We're back in John's Gospel after a couple of months off. And uh, we come to John chapter 12, which in many ways is the halfway mark of John's Gospel. There's not 24 chapters in John's Gospel, but it, it is the last words or the last moments of Jesus' public ministry before he moves into the upper room in chapter 13 and addresses his disciples very closely. Uh, And then we move on to the passion, which, as Paul mentioned, we hit at Easter time. Uh, We've looked at the signs that Jesus has been given, the seven great signs culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus. We flick into the next side of the book where we see the greatest of all signs, Uh, where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is lifted up on a cross, glorified, and then rises to new life and ascends to the right hand of God and is in session. And we now wait his return. But we're in John chapter 12. And my question for you tonight is this. It's coming up on the screen, I hope. No? Nothing there? It'll come up in a minute. Here's my question. What is your nard moment going to look like? What is your nard moment going to look like? You may have no idea what that means. Hopefully, as we move through this text, are you going to see, and hopefully you'll end up being able to talk to someone tonight about what your nard moment is going to be uh, in response to Jesus Christ. How would I pray as we look at this text tonight? Please bow your heads with me. John writes, we have seen his glory. Our Father God, we pray that you would enable us this night to see the glory of Jesus Christ afresh, full of grace and truth, and to grasp it for ourselves. Father, help me to teach the Bible properly. Father, would you help us to not harden our hearts to this wonderful part of your word, but by your spirit, soften us and make us devoted people who see Jesus, love Jesus, hear Jesus, and follow him with all that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, How many people here tonight know the name Tony Bullimore? Does anyone know Tony Bullimore? Yeah, a few people. A few people who've existed longer than others, I think, know who Tony Bullimore is. 1996, Tony Bullimore uh, was stuck in the hull of his yacht for three days as he'd capsized in one of those crazy round-the-world solo yacht races. Um, it caused a small but vigorous debate at the time as to, well, the madness of such an exercise. You know, nutters who do such extreme things and then need to be rescued. the waste of money it took to rescue him, the waste of time for the Navy that it took to send a ship or two out to catch him and bring him back, the taxpayer's money, your money that was spent to bring him out of the hull and back onto land. The the debate went along, you know, he should pay. Then others said, no, the insurance company should pay. And then others said, just leave him to die. On the other hand, it pointed to the fact that there was a human life there that needed to be rescued and reminded us all, I think, of the value of human life and that time and money spent saving a life is never wasted. 
Others, on the other hand, pointed to the out-there-ness of what Tony Bullimore and others were doing, the, the out-there-ness of the lone yacht person. The way that in doing such an extreme thing might even help us in a strange but obscure kind of way see our part and what it means to be a human. A way of being which all of us maybe cannot do but nonetheless valuable in showing us in an exaggerated fashion the magnificence of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. A human being aspiring for the impossible, maybe not the impossible, but the extreme. Now, of course, since 1996, it seems like every man, woman and dog is getting on a boat and sailing around the world solo, capsizing and then needing to be rescued and things like that. But we see people all the time it's attempting extreme activities, getting into trouble, needing to be rescued. Some of the times we must think that these things are just colossal wastes of time. I went onto YouTube the other day and saw that there was a group of boys, blokes, that in a room about this size set up thousands and thousands of dominoes end on end all the way down, up and down, up and down, and then just went flick. And for three minutes you can just watch them all coming up and down, up and down. I mean, what a colossal waste of time that is. Who would do such a thing? But it does show you the possibilities of our human beingness, doesn't it? I mean, are these moments of magnificent obsession or are these moments of utter madness? Should they be derided or, or somehow admired, not emulated? Or are such actions a total waste of time and money or somehow a legitimate waste of time and money? All three questions come to mind when I read John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. I wonder if you'd look down at page 990 with me. John chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read those first eight verses again for us. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, so the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of, it, part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The context of this passage is pretty straightforward. It's quite simple. We are reaching the end of John's account of the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, Lazarus in John chapter 11 has just, he's died. He has been rotting in a tomb for four days. An old translation says he stinketh. Uh, He was in there four days, rotting, decaying, and then Jesus turns up, uh, who loved Lazarus, and he just speaks, Lazarus, come out! And out comes the man who stinketh, alive, raised to life, at the word of Christ. And then a plot has been hatched, a cynical, political plot, to see Jesus out of the scene, and also Lazarus pushed aside, in some kind of death in one way or another. We pick up the story, therefore, at John 
chapter 12. We're familiar perhaps with this story. It has parallels in Matthew, in Mark. Luke also has a story very similar to it in a different part of his gospel, in a different time of Jesus' public ministry. But John sets the scene for us. Millions, two and a half, three million people are coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. The great moment of celebration where they remembered God's work of saving them out of slavery in Egypt, rescuing them and then taking them by his word by day and night to the promised land. Expectation. But as we read the gospels and we see the word Passover, we also read it with some dread because we know that there's a death in the air. But initially, this is all about life. New life. Lazarus is mentioned, and we're reminded of his resurrection from the grave, John chapter 11. Apparently, his resurrection was real, historically real. He's there. It's stuck. He's still alive because what's he doing? He's having food at a festival, at a feast, put on by his sister, Martha. Mary's there. And then comes this incident, which is the focus of the account. Mary takes this flask of very expensive perfume. And anoints Jesus with it. And then wipes his feet with her hair. An extraordinary action. Culturally. Economically. It's a kind of sensual moment. As we see this intimate act. And we're encouraged to smell the nard. For want of a better expression. As the smell pervades the house. I might ask at this point all the women to dig into their handbags and pull out their, you know, pump pack of Chanel or something like that, and the men to dig deep and find probably nothing, but, you know, and start spraying it around to kind of get the fragrance that's filling the room. But it is by any measure an extravagant act of devotion to Jesus on Mary's part. Half a liter of nard, a large amount of perfume, extraordinary, so expensive. It's 300 denarii, which was a year's wage. It equated to, back 300 denarii in our terms, is about $16,000 worth of oil. Harvested from the root and the spike of the nard plant found in northern India. Unadulterated, pure nard, we're told. Either Mary's from a wealthy family or, or it's been in the family a long time, we're not sure. But the extravagant act of Mary simply cannot coexist with the mean-spirited one who counts the cost of everything. The treasurer, Judas, who wants to balance the sheets and, in fact, take some for his own dishonest gain. The incident is actually complete when Jesus has the final word and gives his perspective on what's going on. This anointing by Mary of the feet of Jesus is interesting, to say the least. Why would anyone do this? It's definitely not a guy thing. But I also wonder how many women here would do such a thing. It's kind of out there, wild, extreme. Maybe this is just her way of expressing Jesus' worth. But more to the point, why is this incident recorded for us in John's Gospel? Why has he put it in here? What are we to make of it? What does it add to John's story? of the life of Jesus. It's a family affair. Lazarus, Martha, Mary are all present from chapter 11. Mary's actions, I think, anticipate Jesus' later actions where he will wash the feet of his disciples. But Jesus' actions are much more significant because it's all about his serving love and anticipating his death on their behalf, our behalf. 
The key link in the narrative, though, comes in Jesus' statement that it was for his burial. She's kept it for the day of my burial, says Jesus. But don't you think it's a little bit odd? Because it's not like they're at the burial of Jesus, are they? They're a feast celebrating Jesus' power and majesty and glory that he can raise people from the dead, nonetheless the brother of Mary and Martha. He certainly will be anointed. He will die. He will be anointed with oil once he's died for the sins of the world. But maybe we have here something like the phenomenon that I sometimes dwell on. Do you ever have this thought? Let me run it past you and I'll run it past you and see how you go. I sometimes wonder how nice it would be to have my funeral before I actually die. Do you ever have that thought? You know, so all the, you know, maybe a few people come and they'll say a few nice things about me. Would it be nice to hear those things before you're kind of lying dead? Anyone else have that thought? Yeah, good. I'm not alone. I've actually selected the four or five hymns that I want at my funeral already. I need some help probably, but... But perhaps Mary is thinking, why waste? Why waste this expensive, extravagant oil on a dead corpse when she can honour Jesus, her Saviour and Lord, in his presence and show him how much she loves him? She does suspect that Jesus will be dying soon. Maybe she's performing this as a prophetic sign act, even though she doesn't quite understand. But Jesus helps us out. It fits with the question, but the question remains, why is this incident here? Why does John include it for us, for you and for me? As we've noticed earlier, we're reminded of Jesus' impending death. That's what drives the narrative of John's gospel all the way through. You notice as uh, Peter and Sophie read it, the word hour keeps coming up, and it's been there the whole way through John's gospel. His hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come, and then we see the hour, that's shorthand for Jesus' moment of dying for the sins of the world on the cross, his moment of glorification. It could be that. It could be that it occurs in a sequence of responses again to Jesus as he enters the last phase of his public ministry. Perhaps Mary's response to Jesus is the ideal response of the disciple. You see how the passage goes on? Did you hear as the passage goes on? Mary seems to be juxtaposed against the responses of others, the crowd who only believed in Jesus based on the signs. We've heard that before, haven't we? Jesus didn't entrust himself to people who only believe in his signs. He expects us to believe his words as well. You see the chief priests who want him off the scene because they're not helping their kind of political gain and agenda. They want to kill Lazarus, sweep the evidence under the carpet. They know he's alive. They know the truth. They just don't want to believe it. But John does this a lot. He's already told us of varying responses. We realize, again, there are lots of responses to who Jesus is and why he's come. Maybe we're here caused to put ourselves on that spectrum of belief in the works and words, the miracles and the message, the promises and the performance of Jesus, and actually believe him for who he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, but on the other end, the other end of the spectrum, disbelief. Perhaps John's point is Christological. Again, the anointing of Jesus, pushing us forward to see Jesus' kingship. Connected with his death, we're invited in advance to see that Jesus comes into his kingdom through his death. But the anointing of Jesus is of his feet only, not his head. It's only anticipatory at best. Certainly the weight of the account falls on Judas and his objection, especially when we compare it to the accounts of Matthew and Mark and the other Gospels. 
Maybe this is just another chance for John to have another crack at Judas. I don't think there was a lot of love lost between John and Judas. It would have been interesting to be at a feast or a dinner between those two at Christmas time in particular. Not a lot of love lost. But all this might be true. All these ideas of why we have this incident in our Bibles might be true, but it's still a bit unnecessary, a bit gratuitous. Why do we have it? Is there anything else to be said? Well, a few thoughts. First, in Mark, we're told that whenever the gospel is told, this story ought to be told as well. And I think John, who wants to write a full account of the life of Jesus, he also wants to include these words, this incident, so that we have it, allowing the fragrance of this story to also add to the fragrance of the gospel as it's proclaimed in all the world. Second, there's the clear comparisonism between Mary and Judas. And perhaps this kind of relates to the theme of discipleship, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have Mary's unselfish and devoted discipleship contrasted with Judas's self-seeking and greedy mode of operation. It's a family affair too. I think we see what true Christian discipleship looks like when we look at Lazarus, Martha and Mary. Lazarus is living proof of Jesus' power in resurrecting him to new life and that anticipates Jesus' own resurrection from the grave. Martha, she confesses Jesus with her lips, anticipating the confession that John, the gospel writer, wants from us as well. And Mary anticipates Jesus' own action, which prefigures Jesus' death and his serving love. In one sense, the three go together. A true disciple of Jesus is raised by Jesus, confesses Jesus as Lord, and is willing to humiliate oneself in service of his or her Lord and Saviour. But it's more than just a willingness to humiliate oneself in service for Mary. It's utter devotion to God, utter devotion to the Lord, extravagant devotion. And this is the final thought. Perhaps it's the wildness, the out-thereness of the incident that is the big idea here for us, for me and for you. The action of Mary is a very tangible way of showing the worth, the value we ascribe to Jesus Christ. I think if I was called to anoint Jesus, in one sense I think I'd go to the kitchen and reach for the Crisco vegetable oil, I reckon. There's a real cost in this act, a real cost, a year's wages. Can you imagine? Just think about that for a moment, a year's wage in devotion to your saviour, your Lord. My wife Adele loves perfume and occasionally I get to take a trip overseas, very rarely. And then when I come jetting back into the country, I take a stop at the perfume section of the duty-free to show my extravagant gesture of devotion to my wife. Every time I go there, I resent the fact that her favourite fragrance comes from the Chanel range. My wallet starts kind of leaping around and trying to hide itself. And then I spend about another half an hour debating, and here's, here's a jar of it. I probably should have got another overseas holiday. It's getting a bit empty. 
um, show some more love and devotion. Um, I stand there in front of the aisle, in front of the, you know, I've, I've gone for Chanel chants. I stand there for the next half an hour debating eau de toilette or eau de parfum. I look at the prices, the pure one or the adulterated one. My own nard moment. Friends, I like to think of Mary here in this passage as the, the lone yachtsman of discipleship in the New Testament. This extravagant gesture, this wild and gratuitous and perhaps wasteful act of devotion shows us, you and I, all the possibilities of what our devotion to our Lord and Saviour could look like. It poses the question as to what does our devotion to our Lord and Saviour look like? The one who's died a death so that death may not be the consequence of our sin any longer. The Lord who's died so that we can have eternal life and never, never be apart from our Saviour into eternity. How is it expressed? So the language, if I speak personally, the language of devotion to the Lord doesn't come naturally to me. I used to quickly rush through the adoration component of the anacronym we use when we pray. You know, the ACTS anacronym, adoration, confession, uh, thanksgiving, supplication. I'd, I'd rush through the adoration part because I got quite embarrassed. Adoring God, all that language, that nice language to praise God, adore him. I don't adore as a general rule. I serve, but I don't think of myself as devoted. I'm not particularly one for extravagant words or grand gestures. I can criticise with the best of them those Christians who do wild and crazy things in response to the grace of Jesus Christ. And I think it's okay. But personally, Mary draws me out here. She challenges the possibilities of what our devotion to our Saviour could look like. It's a bit like hearing of a 60-year-old man who's run across the Sahara Desert. That kind of inspires me to get my runners on and run around the block a couple of times. But Mary pushes me. You know, I can sing hymns and songs about Jesus Christ. You are worthy, glorious, exalted on high. I can do it with the best of them, but do I mean it? Do my lips, what I confess, marry up with my life? We sang earlier today at the 8am congregation, uh, the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Uh, the final verse says these, we sing it and our other services from time to time. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I can sing those words. My lips. Do I live it? Lip and life. How do we apply this passage to our lives? I mean, are we called as disciples, followers of Jesus, to do wild things, crazy things, bonkers things for Jesus? Are we all called to do that? You know, extravagant acts of devotion to the Lord that are a bit out there. I don't think it's for all of us, but maybe it's not for us to despise those who do. Perhaps it has something to say to our talk of church strategy and efficiency the possibility of 
wastage in the kingdom. Is it really wastage in the kingdom? If it's spurned from a radical devotion and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, love, extravagant devotion. You know, many people in our church doing extravagant, crazy, bonkers things for Jesus. I think of Kylie Chisholm, who's part of our church here at Church by the Bridge, taking a leave, a leave without pay from her, church, from her work, to go to South Africa for a year to serve children who are affected by the HIV epidemic throughout South Africa, children with HIV, children from homes where HIV has ravaged their families, to serve them, to love them, to care for them, to share Jesus with them to use her skills, her expertise. Mary anoints Jesus and shows us a glimpse of what extravagant and committed devotion might look like. Perhaps, I exhort you tonight, perhaps Mary's visible, tangible effort of anointing Jesus Christ will embolden you and I in our own nard moments for Jesus. The waste of a year's income to serve here or there. The waste of a life to serve the Lord in some far-off, God-forsaken country which needs to hear the gospel. What's your nard moment going to look like? You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell anyone. Inspired by the grace of God, his forgiveness, your eternal life, it's found in him. What will your nard moment be? You might have noticed in finishing that I've all but ignored Jesus' final response to Judas, where he says to Judas, the poor you will always have with you. It's an interesting thing when you read the commentaries that a lot of the commentators also seem to want to ignore this particular idea. They jump through it pretty fast, enjoying all the other juicy puzzles that John kind of throws at us. It's it's drawn really from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, but it's got much more to say. Now, Jesus' statement is true. The poor we will always have with us. And there's certainly no room here for the Christian disciple to ignore the poor in our midst. Quite the opposite, in fact. The poor we will always have with us. Last year, I spent two weeks in India with people scattered across our church services here, just south of Hyderabad in Vijaywada, teaching the Bible. In Vijaywada, it's true. Wall-to-wall, poor, everywhere. Imagine what extravagant devotion to the poor could look like in India. A year's wages transformed. We also need, we need to hear the expectation behind Jesus' answer. You will always have opportunity to give and to serve the poor. And brothers and sisters, can I exhort you to take the opportunity as long as it lasts And see it as a legitimate expression of your Christian discipleship, your being a follower of Jesus, to care for the poor. The poor in your own family, the poor here in our church family, the poor in our mission area, Kirribilli, Lavender Bay and beyond, Greenway. We do it now, but there's more to do. Perhaps some more of our extravagant acts of devotion to our Lord may may make their way to the poor the less privileged. Mary's extravagant act of devotion. How are you going to respond? How are we going to respond? Unreserved, uninhibited, wholehearted, extravagant gratitude. 
in direct response to Jesus' majesty, power, and glory. His ability to defeat death. Evidence in the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. And his own death, which rescues us from our sin. Hopelessness. What will your nard moment look like? Your act of extravagant devotion to Jesus. If you've grasped God's grace, if you've grasped by his grace the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ, if you confess Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, if you have in him eternal life, life to the full, then Jesus demands your life, your soul, your all. Because he poured himself out for us. You belong to him. Nothing we can give him that is too much. What will your nard moment be? You know, racing forward just for a moment in time to that moment when we stand in glory, in heaven, face to face with our saviour. Will we wish we had more money at that point? Will we wish we'd acquired more stuff? Will we wish that we'd lived more comfortably, taken more holidays, completed more DIY projects, watched more episodes of West Wing, pursued a greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of the world? No. Instead, we wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when people from every tribe, nation, language, and people group in the world are gathered around the throne, the Lamb who died for their sins, our sins who delights in his people's radical, extravagant obedience. Because it's the God who deserves, our God who deserves eternal worship and devotion. Radical, devoted, extravagant, out there, bonkers obedience to Christ. It's not easy. It's not going to be comfort, it's not going to be health, wealth, prosperity in this world. But friends, radical, nard-like, sacrificial obedience as a follower of Jesus, it actually risks losing all those things, health, wealth, satisfaction in this life. But in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ. And he's more than enough for us. What's your nard moment going to be? As you think about that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prayed at the beginning, we ask that our hearts would not be hardened, particularly to this part of your word, as we see before us extravagant, wholehearted, unbridled, in fact, maybe unhinged devotion to our Saviour and our Lord. Father, by your Spirit, in that same power of the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, may we be emboldened, empowered to be radically devoted to Jesus and to not fear men, but to seek your praise, your delight, as we live for Jesus, love like him for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.